Hello, and welcome to Encounters, a podcast of the Center for the Study of Statesmanship at the Catholic University of America. I'm Matt Cantorino. Today on the podcast, we'll be speaking with Justin Litke, who's assistant professor here at the Catholic University of America in the Department of Politics and a fellow at the Center for the Study of Statesmanship. We'll also be speaking with Gary Gregg, who directs the McConnell Center, the University of Louisville, and also holds the Mitch McConnell Chair in Leadership at the University of Louisville. And we'll be speaking with Dr. Aaron Coleman, who is Associate Professor of History and Department Chair at the University of the Cumberlands. We'll be speaking about Dr. Gregg and Dr. Coleman's new book, Reflection and Choice, The Federalists, the Anti-Federalists, and the Debate that Defined America. Let me turn it over to Dr. Litke to introduce the topic and ask a question of our other two interlocutors. Why do you have a new edition, yet another new edition, somebody might say, of the Federalist Papers, um, although we know well that there's other stuff in here too? Well, Justin, I appreciate uh, that question. I appreciate you having us on uh, to the podcast uh, today to talk about this. I think there's there's a number of things I want to say about the uh, why a new edition of the Federalist, because you're absolutely right. The basic content you can get in lots of different places. But Dr. Coleman and I put together a book that is unlike anything available. And uh, so let me, let me run through a couple of things to give your listeners an idea of what we did differently. Number one is. And this has been a frustration for me. In some ways, the book goes back into my undergraduate days. I remember when I just graduated from college and I read the Federalists, all 85 Federalists for the first time one summer uh, back in uh, 1991, believe it or not. Well, this is the, uh, what is that, 30th anniversary of, of that moment uh, that I read the Federalists for the first time, cover to cover. And one of the frustrations was, the titles of the papers are things like the same subject continued, the same subject continued Mm -hmm. with emphasis on something rather Uh, really boring, uh, really doesn't don't capture what's actually in the content and give no structure. So one of the things that we wanted to do was to break them apart to show that Publius is writing a, a series on the House of Representatives and how it worked on federalism and how it works on um, uh, on the taxation or on the presidency. So we break them down in our text. It's the only text I know in existence that does that. We break it down and we say, here are the papers on the on the House of Representatives. So if you're interested in exploring what's going on in the House of Representatives right now and how it may or may not align with the Federalists, you can go directly there. And then Dr. Coleman and I decided, well, we've got that structure. Let's put in some introductory material, introductory material to help them understand the reader, understand better the questions are being offered historical uh, in these papers, historical context. And we also raise questions and questions for our time. We want to show that these documents, the Federalists and uh, and the other uh, the anti-Federalists that are in here as well, which we haven't mentioned yet, but is is they're relevant today. Uh, they're not just historical questions. They're relevant today to be thinking through. And so we've added que- we call questions for our time. And I think the last piece that we wanted that we wanted to add in is these were conversations, right? They weren't uh, conversations like they didn't sit down and debate these things, but it was whether to pass the constitution, whether to ratify it was a real debate. And we wanted to capture some of the real debate on 
what was going on in the text of the Constitution. And so we put some anti-federalists right inside uh, our, our, uh, the pages of our book in each section to give an idea of that full context. So what you see, I think, why a new edition of the Federalists? Number one is you can't get uh, enough of the founding debates, uh, particularly in, in our age of historical amnesia. We need to we need a new text to get people to revisit that. But secondly, this is a unique text that we think brings a lot to the to the reader, to the student, to the classroom, and uh, we really hope it does at least. Yeah, I like to add to that too. Uh, the inclusion of the anti-federalists we we consider to be actually one of the most important elements to this. In a lot of editions of the Federalists, you simply do not get the counter argument from the anti-federalists. Uh, in fact, realistically, most students aren't even remotely exposed in any real degree or fashion to the anti-federalists and what they thought and their arguments against, uh, against particular parts of the Constitution. So we were hoping that by you know, including, at best, you know, good excerpts from mm -hmm. some of the key elements in those sections, that students would not just see the debate in terms of how it played out over those particular concepts and issues, but really, you know, get a good flavor for what the anti-federalists were, were actually advocating, what they're actually pushing for. And it's not always, the uh, I've said it before in other places, it's not a, a textbook kind of understanding of the federalists. You get a much more holistic and I think a much firmer grasp of the anti-federalist positions through, through our edition here. <laughs> so this is the Trojan horse of the anti-federalists. You're sneaking them in here. And the well, guys have said, <laughs> well, if it gets him in, then the yeah, shore. That's, <laughs> that's good. Okay. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. What, what does it mean uh, at this point to be a federalist? And what does it mean at this point when the debates are live to be an anti-federalist? Well, you mean in 1787, 1788? Yeah. Uh, in, in reality, we, we really should, should kind of flip those terms in some, some basic sense. Um, the, the anti-federalists really were not against you know, federalism in the way that the, the term may sound. They were actually advocating a much stronger, even confederal system of government, much closer uh, in line with the Articles of Confederation. It's really the federalists uh, who are advocating for a much different, uh, very unique uh, government in which you know, a confederal system of, of sovereign states really while it may still somewhat exist, is significantly weaker and it's much more centralized than, uh, certainly not centralized as it is today, but certainly more centralized than most Americans would have just a decade earlier in declaring independence would have ever conceived possible. So we really should flip those kind of terms. And, and, and you, you read, not, not, not so much in our excerpts here, but you will read, if you read the whole corpus of anti-federalist literature, that they're kind of upset by, by getting called anti-federalists because they're, they're actually looking back and saying, no, we're the federalists. They're the innovators. They're the con, uh, consolidators, uh, not us. And so I, I really think we should, if we really want to be honest with it, flip those terms and trying to, trying to see what they're getting at. Was it George Mason or, or someone else that said uh, it really should be not Federalist and Anti-Federalist, but rats and right, empty well, rats? Uh, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I think it, it was it was him or Patrick Henry. I can't remember yeah. exactly which one. But yeah. yeah, I mean, you see that a lot in their in the kind of writings, this kind of anger at, at having their term kind of used against them. And mm -hmm. and they really don't take up the moniker. Some of them will 
kind of wear it as a badge of honor. But generally speaking, you know, they, they're really they make some great pains to say, no, we're, we're actually federals. We believe in federalism. And uh, mm-hmm. those guys over there don't. <laughs> and th- this connects with something else that I noticed in some of uh, your introductory materials in the book is that uh, you you seem to want the folks reading this edition and using this edition and you want them to use it. And, and it's a beautiful edition, by the way, right? It's it's nice, big, it's nice quality paper. It's got these beautiful end papers. So everybody go out and get it. <laughs> but um, uh, one of the things I noticed in these introductory materials was you seem to invite people to use these arguments and these pieces of writing as a way to distance themselves from contemporary debates in a way, not uh, in a way that these things are remote from any sort of relevance uh, uh, to contemporary debates, but in a way to kind of uh, cause us to question the way that we generally frame things nowadays. I think I think it's absolutely right. I appreciate you uh, you commenting on the uh, um, the quality of the text as well. Because I think we really did put a beautiful volume together, if I do say so uh, myself. We spared no expense with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's exactly you're pointing up exactly right. Is we're trying to at least in part to allow the contemporary reader to step back from the heat and the uh, the vitriol of the moment to think about uh, and, and to think. Objectively is not really the right word, but to think in some degrees to say non-ideologically, at least in the contemporary you know, world, and not to think about parties, but to think about what a good constitutional structure might be. Uh, my co-author, uh, co-editor, and, my, and uh, I might disagree a little bit on what exactly that might be. He tends to lean toward the anti-federalists. I tend to lean toward the federalists, right? And I think that makes maybe makes what uh, a good conversation here in the in the text that we bring to bear as uh, as well. But to uh, to get contemporary people or our contemporaries to be thinking back, look at the founding and look at our contemporary world and sort of pull up above that, uh, use it to pull ourselves above it and above the party debates to think about those core questions of constitutionalism, of liberty, of government efficiency, of human nature, uh, you name it, which are all in these uh, Federalist and the Anti-Federalist excerpts that we provide. Mm-hmm. What, what do the Federalist Papers get really right about the Constitution? And if there's something that they don't, what do they get really wrong? And I, frankly, Dr. Coleman, I want to hear the same thing about the Anti-Federalists, but we can do the Publius first. <laughs> yeah, I'll, 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 let, I'll let Gary answer that one. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think that having us together, it'll be, it'll be perfect balance here. Here's how, when I think about the Federalists, Anti-Federalists, and I've been doing this for a long time, as I said, 1991, I was, when I read them cover to cover, um, but I tend to, the, the formula I've come up with is this, the Federalists were prescriptive, the Anti-Federalists in many ways proved predictive. Mm. Uh, I'll, re- I'll repeat that, but the, the Federalists were prescriptive. And what I mean by that is if you, and you read the Federalists, I think the Publius in the Federalist Papers gives us a good uh, now, he's, he's trying to promote the Constitution, obviously. You have to keep that in mind. But he gives us a pretty good analysis of how the system should work. 
the anti-federalists proved to be right in so many ways in predicting of how it would work over time. I think if uh, that's one of the things that you should throw on the table where the federalists got wrong is that they didn't predict uh, in, in lots of ways, all kinds of ways, in ways that it would evolve in the centralization of power to the national government, the centralization of power in the presidency, um, the or courts. just to, and the courts, mm -hmm. absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, the least dangerous branch, right. Hamilton calls uh, the, mm -hmm. the courts, right? Um, yeah, not, it turns out not to be very predictive in that. But I think looking back at the Federalists from my side of this, as you look back at the Federalists, you can sort of help write the system by looking at what it should have been, what it could have been, which may mean um, amendments that might look kind of anti-federal uh, to mm -hmm. get it back to the system. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, that's I think that's how I would uh, my over overarching. We talk lots yeah. about the different things, you know, very specifics, but. I'll turn it over to Nathan to see what he uh, he says about that. Well, and and as you do, I want to say that that sounds an awful uh, lot like somebody to whom I owe a great deal, which was uh, the late George Carey, who talked about the constitutional morality that you can kind of glean when you're reading through the Federalist Papers. There's a lot of ought here. Uh, it's not necessarily just an instruction manual. How do you you know how is this going to work? It's more like you're talking this prescriptive maybe. Well, uh, George Carey was my uh, guiding star uh, mm -hmm. for the Federalists as, as well in the mm -hmm. founding debate. So you shouldn't. I'm flattered that you see that. <laughs> Dr. Coleman, what about the anti-Federalists? Uh, well, I think they got a whole heck of a lot right. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it in terms of what they perhaps got wrong is that I think they there's too much of a, um, I won't say Pollyanna, I don't mean to, I mean to be the right word, a view of politics at the state level. Mm. That politics at the state levels, it, to push back against Madison some, they, they, they don't see it as factionist as it really was. Mm -hmm. They don't see it as um, politically driven as, as it truly was on the ground. I mean, that's one thing I do think Madison is very correct about, mm -hmm. is the degree to which the the a lot of the problems that we were seeing that led to the Constitution are really less a result of the failure of the articles as much as it's the failures of the states internally. Mm -hmm. uh, in his, especially if you look at his um, biases on the political system, I think he's. I think his his analysis there is pretty accurate. Uh, so I think the anti-federalists completely uh, gloss over all of those issues. Uh, in terms of what they got right, I think one of the reasons why they, when people read the Anti-Federalist, uh, it, it's it, when my students read the Anti-Federalist, it's rather, I guess, rewarding for them to say, "Hey, you know, oh my gosh, you know, this seems so right." And I, and a lot of the reason for that is because I think they they really had a, a perhaps a better understanding of not not just human nature. I think there's a lot in common there with with the Federalist. But at the same time, I probably a better understanding of the weariness of power and the desire to you know, see power kept in check and kept less arbitrary, uh, which in turn keeps it from being less centralized. Mm -hmm. And so I think they had a much better understanding of that, uh, at least on paper, than, than Madison and Hamilton and Jay did. Uh, so I, I think in general, th those are the key things I'd point out. So uh, you, you brought up the, uh, and so did Dr. Greg, this notion of human nature. Um, let's, let's get a little more philosophical and, and face up to that. Uh, 
what do the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists have in common in regard to human nature and where, where do they diverge, if you could articulate it? Well, I think they, where, they're, where they're in agreement is the notion that human nature is um, fallen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it is selfish. It is uh, people are inherently self-interested uh, in general. I think I think they can kind of have a, a basic agreement on that, and and at least to a very certain extent, uh, an, an agreement that power should at least be skeptical. People should be skeptical of power. Now, where they where I think they diverge is the degree of that skepticism. The anti-federalists are much more Whiggish. Uh, or Republican, I guess, you, you, if you want to call it that, than I think the Federalists were. I think the Federalists believed that if we get these structural mechanisms in place, uh, separation of powers, maybe some federalism, uh, written, you know, enumeration of powers, all these things put into place, those mechanics would actually kind of keep, you know, it, it would be a little more safer in, it, with entrusting power to government. And the anti-federalists, uh, even if they agreed with separation of powers and federalism, uh, just said absolutely not. You know, you can't trust any individual to wield any kind of arbitrary power whatsoever, whether, whether it be a president, a Congress, or courts. That those, you know, any kind of arbitrariness built into that system isn't just inherently dangerous. And I think it stems a lot from the fact that they, they just had a very um, dour view of human nature. Now, I, I, I won't let Gary answer this, but I only have one more thing, if I could, uh, it is when it comes to questions of virtue, however, uh, it, it's almost the opposite. When it comes to questions of you know, what makes virtue, you know, the necessity of virtue for Republican self-government, the, the anti-federalists did believe that virtue was possible on a local level, uh, that, that one of the, the beauties of state government is the fact that it is more accountable to the people, allows the people to be more virtuous, uh, and practice a, a you know a simplistic republican virtue that you can't find in a larger centralized and extended republic of the kind the federalists were advancing. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, Dr. Gregg. Yeah, I think it's all right, um, and, and I think uh, Nathan did a good job of, of pointing out that. I, I, I agree with, I think their, their basic view of human nature is essentially the same. It's of a fallen, uh, fallen man uh, who can't be trusted uh, with uh, unchecked power. And I, but I think it's a, it, it is a matter of degree. And at least Publius would say that, I think. Publius himself in, in one of the papers, I think it's in the section on the House of Representatives, points out that if you take the anti-federalist rhetoric seriously, uh, you couldn't even have Republican government because mm -hmm. they are so worried, so intensely worried about not trusting anyone with any kinds of power. Uh, and again, this is Publius's argument. He's trying to make a, uh, you know, win the, win the argument, obviously, mm -hmm. but is that we couldn't even have the base. You couldn't have, why, you can't have elections if you can't really trust people to make, you know, objective decisions. You can't have uh, put people in any kind of power if because they can't be trusted with the kind of power. So I think it is a degree uh, of difference. And I think um, maybe Hamilton, um, Madison and, and Jay, which we should uh, point out to your listeners if they're not familiar with that, that's when we talk about Publius, we're talking about the collective of Hamilton, Jay and Madison mm -hmm. in the Federalists uh, following George Carey's, uh, right. uh, George Carey's <laughs> admonitions to mm -hmm. discuss them as they intended. Do you think it's also fair to say that there's a disagreement about perhaps the location of that virtue? Uh, whereas for the Federalists, it's, it's in an elite. 
uh, or it's to be found in, and exemplified by an elite. Whereas for the anti-federalists, it's to be found in the common people. I, I tend to think those arguments are exaggerated. To be honest with you, that that seems like the kind of that that seems more, uh, if you'll pardon me, a, a political scientist argument than a historian's argument. Frankly, I I uh, I I think on the whole, the Federalists wanted and desired virtue on a wide range, you know, base of citizen, of the citizenry, uh, and, and the anti-federalists most absolutely did, uh, but. It, that it could be found only in an elite. Um, I, I don't. I don't. I don't think they would subscribe to that. Uh, uh, ideally, uh, I'm trying to think of an actual passage that, that I could defend with that, but I can't right now. <laughs> but but no, you know, I, I, I think it's on. there though. No, I think that's absolutely true. Uh, you can see it uh, sometimes in how um, Publius seems to think that the notion of elections are going to work. That uh, you're not going to have a proper election out of nowhere, right? Uh, there has to be something feeding into that system. Um, yeah. yeah, well, yeah, that's, that's a great example, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, absolutely. So I, I, I think the difference is, is that when it, when it boils down to it, the, to be perhaps way too simplistic, the Federalists don't necessarily believe virtues is necessary for self-government. You have these mechanisms in place that, that it's a machine that would go of itself, as Washington calls it. Um, but the anti-federalists believe it's, you know, critically, you know, just absolutely vital to have, you know, a Republican virtue built in, you know, to the system uh, that you're just not going to find at a, at a large centralized level. Again, that's simplistic, but, 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 but I, think it, I think it works. Yeah, I, I'm just thinking, I just kind of called to mind this passage from uh, one of Melanchthon Smith's uh, letters, uh, where he talks about uh, that the virtue of the citizenry includes, in general, the yeomanry, the subordinate officers, civil and military, the fishermen, mechanics, and traders. Um, he, it seems almost like he's referring to a different class of people there, um, that the fishermen and the mechanics. Uh, the Federalists don't talk about, about them, do they? I think if you you're pointing to a core debate that's gone on for a long time um, in political science circles, at least I don't know about the historians. Not so in political science <laughs> and political scientists uh, have debated for a long time uh, the role of virtue in in Madison's thoughts or in the in the Federalists. I'm one who uh, I wrote my my dissertation that somewhat related to this topic, uh, and I'm one that I do see virtue talk in the Federalists. Uh, so the other the 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 opponents of that view will say it's all built on uh, it's all built on selfishness. It's all built on ambition to counteract ambition. It's a it's a machine that's going to work itself, as you said in the in the quote. And it won't matter what their uh, the quality of the people um, that are elected. I don't see that in the Federalists. I see the I see the Federalists arguing that the system is going to encourage the best people. Uh, what, whatever you want to call virtue right now, but the best people, and it's generally considered, uh, I think, in the language of uh, particularly Madison, of the wise, the just, and the patriotic, mm -hmm. who have the virtue to pursue the common good of the, of the society will be elected. It's more likely. So what I look at is the system was built assuming that there is a, a level of virtue in the citizenry to pick their betters, uh, and send them to office, let's say, and then 
a trust that they will be better and will be tr just, wise, and patriotic. However, a backup system is built to protect against that. And that is, if they're not that, we can stop them by ambition, counteract ambition, separation of powers, checks and balances, uh, the, uh, the written constitution itself, and federalism. I think it's a really important, really important uh, debate. And, you know, if you throw that to today, you know, there's all kinds of questions we can ask about the virtue of, uh, of our citizenry and of our, uh, of our leaders, um, you know, by using those kind of questions today. Yeah. And, and of course, the, the precise passage that you're thinking about, um, uh, ambition should be made a counteract ambition, one of the most famous. But at the end of that passage or towards the end of the, uh, that, those several sentences, this is where, gosh, I usually uh, finger this as the uh, place um, where you can maybe have a kind of germ form of American political thought where he says um, a reliance, I'm trying to find the quote while I'm talking to you, um, the, you know, a, a reliance on elections um, uh, uh, is uh, irreplaceable, but experience has taught mankind the necessity of auxiliary precautions, right? So uh, there's nothing in Publius that I detect that's anything but a small R Republican, but he doesn't think that's enough. He thinks that uh, he, he's portraying anyway his opponents in this political controversy as seeming to kind of end their philosophical political inquiries there. That you have to rely on character and you have to rely on the kind of institutions of local control to provide for that character as much as you can. And then boom, you're done. And Publius seems dissatisfied with that. He seems to think that that is not reliable enough for designing a viable constitutional order. And so we need these things that we have gleaned from experience, things like separation of powers, things like a grander scale of politics for reasons that he argues. I think you're right. I'll point you to the exact uh, passages on 346 mm -hmm. of reflection and choice, the Federalist, the Anti-Federalist, <laughs> and the debate that defined America. Um, a dependence on the people is no doubt the primary control on the government, but experience has taught mankind the necessity of auxiliary precautions. Mm -hmm. I think I think that's a core lesson for today, frankly, is we have come to worship uh, mm -hmm. democracy like it's going to fix everything. If we just elect people, it's going to fix everything. Uh, and uh, and I don't think that's, uh, that's certainly not what uh, I, I think what either side would have uh, would have would have believed. Uh, but it's certainly not what the Federalists uh, would have believed or the or the framers of the Constitution. But we have and, and much more closer to probably I'm going to say the the name that uh, the historian on the on the call will not appreciate. But us political scientists would Alexis de Tocqueville would have predicted. <laughs> and that is that we would come to worship democracy and that would become sort of the only uh, the only qualification uh, for good government is did you vote the people in? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, there's nothing wrong with invoking Tocqueville when when, that, when appropriate, but but um, it, it uh, I think a lot of this also speaks to you know some of the anti-federalist uh, problems with the Constitution and going back to you know Justin's question about what they got right and what they got wrong. It, 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 elections, yes, but what kind of elections? To thinking like anti-federalist, are we having? They're at best biannual, right? Every other year, just just for one branch. Mm -hmm. And the other one is, yes, it's you know, direct election or election by the state legislatures, and then it's one every four years. 
you know, elections should be annual to the anti-federalist. And if you have this kind of broad, this long term in between elections, it doesn't matter who you select. Once they go off and taste power, it, it ultimately they're going to be intoxicated by, by drinking that power. And so, you know, it goes now you have it. And then when you add a constitution that has uh, to the anti-federalist mind anyway, very ambiguous powers attached to it. even though they're enumerated, they're still kind of ambiguous with the necessary and proper clause and, and a court that can basically rule on, on facts and law uh, and, a, and a president that for all intents and purposes has, no actual written down powers beyond one or two seems to be very broad, very open. What you have is a recipe for tyranny in the anti-federalist mind. So it, it, elections, yes, that's great, but th this is just way too broad. And ultimately it, it disconnects you. Uh, it's when you look at you know, Brutus one and a few through the other, in some of the Cato essays, you know, their fears over the size of this Republic kind of negates, you know, kind of overrides so much else of what they're they're fearful of, because ultimately you're you're not, it doesn't matter how much virtue you have at the local level or if you're picking the best person, or whatever, they're not going to know you because they have to travel so far and be in and be completely disconnected from you uh, and the issues on the ground, so to speak, that that led you to think they were a wise choice to begin with. So I think it kind of speaks to some of those anti-fairness fears, in fact. Let me um, let me shift gears a little bit and ask um, about something that uh, I'm, I'm kind of curious about personally. Um, would you say that there's a theory of foreign policy implicit in the Federalist, uh, that there's a kind of lowercase r Republican approach to foreign policy? Well, you know, it's really interesting because um, I'll, I'll reference a secondary work, if I can, an excellent book by a historian named Max Edling called A Revolution in Favor of Government really kind of speaks to this issue uh, in which he, he, he basically says, and, I, and I'm in, and I think in agreement with this, is that if you look at Publius and again, trying to think of them as one group as, as opposed to individuals, what we actually see is, a, is really a recipe for um, uh, the, uh, at least a hidden recipe, I guess, for the fiscal military state uh, in terms of be, being able to generate revenue through commerce, uh, through taxation and and impost taxes, the the control of the the military that the Congress will wield, even though it's limited to only two years, it's still you know they still have appropriating funds. The commander in chief uh, is really ill-defined power uh, in the Constitution. That really, if if we really look at it, what what we're seeing here is I wouldn't say small r as much as it's um, uh, imperial. And that's my word. Uh, you know, I, I don't necessarily think that what, what Publius was wanting to do is go paint the flag on for, foreign soils or boots on the ground, so to speak. But it does uh, create, uh, have a recipe there that will allow for a very robust um, foreign policy that, that was un, just completely unconceived of under the Articles of the Federation. You know, Gary may, be, may differ with me on that. Yeah, I'm not sure I see. Um, I, I I'm not sure I see it in the language of Publius, um, what Dr. Coleman was just laying out. I can see in the logic of, of, uh, of the Constitution uh, what he's, he's laying out there. It makes some sense. But I think, you know, in, in foreign policy, it's mostly dealing with uh, commerce and, uh, and trade issues. And then, um, and then kind of... A, 
I'm not sure exactly how to how to say this, but I think he is in the passages dealing with the military is I, I'm not saying he's the most anti-federalist, but he really kind of takes Publius kind of takes on the anti-federalist positions and uh, against the standing army, let's say perfect example of that is is really against the standing army, which the anti-federalists were very, very concerned about. Publius takes that up. He doesn't say don't be concerned about it, but he takes it up and says, if you are concerned about it, the way we don't have a standing army is to have a strong central government, is to have a unified system, is peace through strength. Uh, the way I would sum it up is uh, probably all foreign policy, at least with the military and the, and the, and the Federalist Papers, is peace through strength. And so there's an emphasis on you want peace, you don't want a big standing army, et cetera. Well, the best way to do that is to unify, uh, have some degree of centralization uh, and um, and then have a military and, and do have some kind of a military uh, that is able to repel invasions uh, or, um, you know, Indian wars on the on the edges. And he paints a picture of uh, the alternative being. Uh, the states having to states are going to have to defend themselves individually, and so you're either going to have to have 13 standing armies, um, or you're going to have one sort of centralized um, military force that can move around and and defend uh, defend the the rest. So, anyway, that's uh, that's where I see him. I'm not sure, but I think in the logic, I think you can see in the logic of the Constitution the things that Dr. Coleman just said, uh, where it can where it can lead to the more of an imperialist foreign policy. In the actual text, I'm not sure I see that. I think it connects uh, with some of the things that we were talking about in terms of character, both character of the legislators and the, the leaders involved uh, in various official capacities and the character of the, the people, according to this anti-federalist view or federalist view. Um, is there something in human nature uh, uh, that just seeks to, once it holds on to power, seeks to aggrandize itself, seeks to grow uh, and increase and, and uh, lengthen out its influence? Um, that seems to have something in common with some more conventionally use the word in a more conventional way in this imperial mindset um, that maybe many people observe in uh, uh, the last hundred plus years <laughs> of American conduct. Yeah. It does seem that the bet is um, that you can have this extended republic without turning it into an empire. Um, mm -hmm. And I mean, that's the whole logic of, I guess, this Federalist 14 uh, and, and in various other places. And that leads actually into one of the, the other things that I think would be interesting to, to talk about. Um, if there's a patron saint in the Federalist Papers, it might have the same patron saint actually in the Anti-Federalist Papers, which is Montesquieu. So uh, now Montesquieu, for people who aren't super familiar, a French thinker who, among other things, pioneered uh, thinking on the separation of powers. But one of the things he was very enthusiastic about was this notion of a series of politically connected independent republics. And he seemed to think you could kind of have the best of both worlds between republicanism on the one hand and uh, the kind of unified uh, advantages of a monarchy on the other hand. Was Montesquieu wrong? Did, did the Federalist uh, authors and the Anti-Federalists uh, who took him very seriously here, um, were they all just wrong in the same way? Were they wrong in different ways? Did one of them get it more right than the others on this? Uh, how viable is this project? Go ahead, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> just small questions here. Yeah, just chit chat. Uh, 
Um, well, but that, that that's actually a rather difficult question. Um, it goes. I, I think a lot of it goes with how. It, it, I, I agree with you that Montesquieu is like the patron saint. It's a good way of putting it. Uh, but it's really they they read different parts of Montesquieu. That's really what they do. Uh, for the for the anti-federalists, I mean, they're clearly reading the small republic. You know, the the, the necessity of, of a small republic. And I would you know argue, uh, although I can't, I don't think they directly reference this part in Montesquieu. I think they're clearly talking about Montesquieu's you know, conception of liberty as well, which uh, is not wholly unique to Montesquieu. Montesquieu is actually building off a very long tradition that stretches all the way back to the to, to the Roman period on on these concepts of of what liberty actually is, uh, and versus the Federalists who seem to be drawing more on on uh, this kind of let's you know the se pure separation of powers you know building into uh, the, the the preferred monarchical elements uh aristocratic elements of, of Republican government and the anti-federalists just completely push that off to the side so I, I'm trying to dodge your question by <laughs> by, by, by you know really trying to may, maybe it's it, it is it really does boil down to what parts of Montesquieu they're looking at and I think if we if we think of it in that sense we can see some of the, the why they're able to use the exact same author and the exact same book in mm -hmm. fact and draw very different conclusions on the nature of the Constitution. I, I often point out to my students uh, the uh, Publius's use of Montesquieu in this regard because it makes it so obvious that if the fight is over Montesquieu, that must be something that the the hearers of anti-federalist things and federalist things have in common, right? That they both grant a good deal of credence to this one author, and so. Um, he places a lot of his uh, chips, I guess, to use the poker metaphor he, on my interpretation of Montesquieu is right. And therefore hmm. you need to vote to ratify. This is what we need to do. Yeah, it, it's really interesting how you, you don't see the, the references to people like Locke or, or even the, the Whig canon of like Algernon Sidney or, or mm -hmm. Cato's letters. And, you know, that, that really drove the revolution. Th those kind of they're there, but they're they're much more minimal compared to Montesquieu, mm -hmm. uh, and it, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact the, the degree to which Montesquieu is a an excellent synthesis of a lot of that thought. Certainly, by the time we get to the mid 18th century, when he's publishing you know, *Spirit of the Laws*, that he he's taking a lot of this very old tradition and bringing it one massive book that's pretty um, you know fairly readable. Certainly for the 18th century, very readable. Yeah, I'm so glad we're talking about uh, Montesquieu. Not that I, not that I'm an expert in Montesquieu in any way, shape, or form, but I do think he is that lost, uh, the lost key to the founding. Uh, it, it is someone. He is someone that both sides, as you're pointing out, revered. And this is not just, you know, not just well. Here's a reference book. Uh, this is the sage uh, Montesquieu. Uh, this is this is the patron saint uh, of of these ideas. And nobody knows them today. Right. The American citizen, not only the average American citizen, I almost guarantee you the average political science undergraduate has never read any Montesquieu. And most political scientists haven't either, frankly. Uh, and so it is all the story is told by uh, about Locke or uh, or even uh, even Hobbes or um, Machiavelli, maybe when some schools, who knows. But um, but Montesquieu has been lost. So I'm glad we're having a little bit of that conversation. I do think revered on both sides 
Uh, and Justin, I think you're right when you point out that the, at least the rhetoric that the Federalists use is, um, yes, we all revere Montesquieu, but the Anti-Federalists have a misreading of Montesquieu. Uh, and that's particularly in the in the separation of powers stuff. It's, you know, where the Fe where the Anti-Federalists are going to so strictly adhere to separation of powers uh, to as to consider the Senate or the vice president, let's say it's that's the most absurd argument. Mm -hmm. uh, it seems to me that the vice president will be this in great danger to liberty uh, because the vice presidency is sort of straddles two branches. Right. Mm -hmm. And so uh, what Publius is going to say is, look, uh, Montesquieu doesn't require absolute complete separation separation of powers. There's there's room in here for some new kind of concept that uh, we call checks and balances. But anyway, but they're fighting over the same. Your bigger question of whether it's uh, this this project is uh, uh, is um, viable uh, is a question that should be dodged, but should be thrown out for <laughs> for all of your listeners to be to be thinking through. Um, and uh, and my guess is that would take a whole lot of podcasts to, uh, sure. uh, to, to pull apart. Yeah, well, one of the things that's intriguing to me um, uh, in this regard is is uh, I was reading. Well, how do how do I tell this story? That <laughs> you remember George Carey, and you remember his frequent co-author, a man named Wilmore Kendall. He's got this great little essay um, about local politics, and his argument in that essay is that uh, one of the reasons that local politics starts to fizzle over the course of American history is because of this greater and greater centralization of political control at the national level and in the presidential office. And so he said, if you wanna reinvigorate local offices and therefore in a way reinvigorate some of the original design of all the constitutional framework, you're going to have to devolve political authority. But there's actually no replacement for that. To me, uh, in that article, he, he does not, I don't even know if he's read by that point, uh, Tocqueville, I mean, he probably had, but um, he certainly doesn't reference Tocqueville or refer to Tocqueville. That seems to me a terribly Tocquevillian argument that um, it's actually when something's at stake at the local level that it forces uh, individual American citizens into the habits of mind, into the face-to-face uh, -face interactions that are going to generate the kind of citizenship that we need for the whole thing to work, that are going to generate the kind of deliberative processes that they think are required for a good political outcome. Um, not that it's guaranteed. I mean, the other thing that I always tell my students to appreciate about Publius and frankly as interlocutors too, is that he's very careful not to say, if you do X, Y, and Z, you will have A, B, and C outcomes. This will happen. It's maybe contrary to Dr. Coleman's interpretation <laughs> that it's not a guarantee that this is contingent and that the best you can do is design a very good political system that tends towards certain outcomes when you have certain inputs, right? Um, uh, but he, he's very careful to talk most of the time in terms of probabilities, uh, and that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that actually at all. Uh, I, I, will, I will go back just for a second. You mentioned that, that this, the, the local politics and the Tocquevillian mm -hmm. nature, that's not even Tocquevillian, it's Jeffersonian. Right. I mean, and I think that's sure. the thing that really kind of drives me crazy as a historian is that, you know, what we're really talking about, I mean, that is really traditional Jeffersonian politics. Uh, being, you know, it's, it should be local. It should be practiced. That's what Tocqueville is seeing when he's, when he's writing, you know, uh, Democracy in America is the, the full on ensconcement by this point, three decades into it of Jeffersonian Republicanism. 
Uh, and I think it just gets dramatically overlooked. I, and, I, and I try to, not to belabor this point, but I did try to tell my students that, you know, the election of 1800 here, it, it, it really is a, a, an anti-federalist victory in a whole lot of ways. I mean, there, no, don't get me wrong, the context, there's a whole, whole set of context here that needs to be discussed that we don't have time for. But ultimately, that sets the, the when we think of the pre-Civil War United States in terms of its political practices, what we are really talking about is not a Publius enactment of the Constitution. It's the anti-federalist enactment of the Constitution. I think that really needs to be, you know, hammered a lot more uh, than, than we often give it credit for. Of course, you got John Marshall hovering like, like a like an albatross over all of that. <laughs> but, but, but nonetheless, I think it's very, uh, you know, very true, very a very true thing that we just have to really, you know, keep in mind. Your question makes me think of two uh, uh, two observations. One is on the on the local thing, and I think you're both right on that um on the local um that's one thing that struck me in this reading uh my new reading i'm doing of the uh, reading through again the the all this text is how much publius assumed at least in his rhetoric that the the nation would still be centered in the states and not just be not just by the government but by the people Mm -hmm. you know the people would care and love their states would would think they're they're represented best by their state legislature the state legislatures would be the ones that are ambitious and that are that are going to rule our basically daily lives and the federal government's going to do very little um let's take a walk you could walk away from this and think well what the heck the federal government's supposed to do when you see that uh, all the daily stuff is going to be controlled by the states and i think to the degree that that has not panned out. There's all kinds of probably places we can look for that, but the degree that that has not panned out has really disrupted the entire system. And I think even even Publius, if he's honest, will have to look at the system and say that centralization of all of these things and the people's looking at the national governments for salvation instead of the states is blowing up um, whatever that system that was supposed to supposed to be there. The second thing you make me think of real quick is, and this is, I think the thing that's jumped out at me the most in my new reading is how unideological the Publius's arguments are. And what I mean by that is, I think the anti-federalists are very ideological thinkers. And that is, mm-hmm. you can sum up their thought to liberty, 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 <laughs> liberty. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and state sovereignty, <laughs> state sovereignty. And, and Publius everywhere everywhere is putting things into context and he's saying yes liberty but stability liberty but efficiency liberty but and he ha- he's building this in this uh, which I think is also uh, I'll throw out a sort of Tocquevillian if you want to throw that out is um, is we have to look at, at not single solutions or single values but complicated systems and I think that's that's the thing that I step away from in this reading, reevaluating and and thinking through the founding debates um, and that sort of non-ideological nature of the of the Federalists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. I think pinning that the anti-Federalists are much more ideological is, is very accurate, actually, um, both to their plus and, and detriment. Course, uh, I, I will you know push not push back, but add one thing to what Dr. Greg just said there uh, at the beginning is you know that it seems seems to have gone off track uh, from from what Publius was wanting. Well, the anti-federalists will say, well, what did you expect? 
you know, the, of course it's going to go off track, you mm-hmm. know, and, and this is why it's going to go off track. And that goes back to your, you know, Dr. Greg's uh, predictive uh, element to them. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they're able because, and, and I don't want to say ideological. I mean, I, I agree with that statement, but we got to maybe put in some context of not the way the rigidness of our ideologies today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but nonetheless, that, you know, they are guided by that ideology and, I think probably a, a Whiggish understanding of history mm-hmm. in which, you know, it, it's inevitable that if that liberty is going to decline, if you know, we, we trust government with too much power. So the fact that we see it as gone, have gone in, in modern days as having gone off the rails seems to me exactly what the anti-federalists were, were trying to warn against because they, they're influenced by their, their ideology and this Whiggish understanding of history. One of the uh, one of the things that people often fault Publius with is that he doesn't provide enough, and I think this is frankly some of the fascination uh, in many circles with Tocqueville, that he doesn't provide enough thinking and backbone on the kind of social cultural side, right? And so uh, somehow in kind of twentieth and twenty first century America, we've we've managed to say, well, if you have Publius, then you add Tocqueville, maybe you've got something, right? You've got they form some sort of coherent whole. But uh, this this formulation that that you all offered uh, earlier, uh, that you, Dr. Greg, offered earlier, of perhaps if Publius was here, he might be offering some anti-federalist kind of amendments <laughs> to the structures of the Constitution uh, um, is is fascinating to me. Is there anything else? I mean, if 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 the average reader uh, is looking at what you've provided and s- noticing that there's a kind of distance, uh, figuratively not just historically, between what you find in this volume and what you find out there in the wild today. Um, what else? What else can be done? Yeah, I think, you know, I'm starting to work on formulating a, uh, a thought that, uh, you know, generally our, our debates have tended to be you're either pro the American founding and mm-hmm. the founding vision of the Constitution or you're for reform. I think that's a false uh, that's a false narrative, really, because we don't have a system that and this is something that anti-federalists and federalists of today will agree, I think, on. We don't have a system that looks that operates like it was supposed to intended to be operate. So I think if you want to be if you want to I think we need to come up with a situation or rethink this so that real defenders of the founding vision of America would be the reformers. Uh, Because I think there's all kinds of reforms. If the system doesn't work the way it was intended to work, then we need to reform the system. Uh, And I think we're we're not there yet. That's not how we've tended to think. Uh, Conservatives uh, will need to think of stop conserving something that doesn't work and need to think let's reform something to make it work Mm -hmm. the way, you know, it was intended, if that's what we want. It's certainly sort of what what I think I want. I think a good example of this would be, um, let's say Federalist 51, ambition to counteract ambition, which we've talked about a little bit. Ambition is not working to counteract ambition now. Mm-hmm. Congress is readily throwing its power to the executive. Uh, the states are not standing up and fighting for, uh, in any effective way, uh, for a true system of, of federalism. And they're being able to be bought off by um, by government largesse, um, mm-hmm. et cetera. So, well, okay, they're a perfect example. Let's we well, how do we fix it then? How do we get it back to? Um, one of the the other things I'll throw out is I think um, 
our party system. And I think one of the great problems that blows up this entire deal is the two party system. And so, uh, and that's really, if, if you, if I asked, you know, the one solution to uh, not solution, but the one great problem of ambition, counteracting ambition is that senators really care more about uh, their political party and their party winning um, and giving power to their presidents when they're of their own party. Um, and then they do their, their own institution. Uh, so, okay. So what's the, an- I don't know what the answer to that is. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's a very serious, uh, serious problem that we should, that we need to figure out how to take on. I agree completely. Uh, I, I, let me, uh, throw one hesit- hesitant or, or caution, a uh, note of caution here. Yeah, this is, if you want to put this in some context, I mean, this is kind of the situation in 1780, you know, 86 going into 1787, you know, the system seems broken. Mm-hmm. It seems like nothing, you know, whether or not that's true or not, that's, that's, that's neither here or there for now, but you know, everything seems to be falling apart. Uh, and then what we have is, you know, of course, what the anti-federalists will call, you know, the, the innovation, right. And, you know, whether or not that's again, whether or not that's true or not, whether the constitution, the Publius was a great innovator in the way yes. we often use that term. That's a, again, a very different conversation. But it, it is nonetheless a dramatic change, at least in some form and fashion, that was emerging out of, you know, that came out of 1780, the crisis of 86 and 87. If, if you think that system is broken <laughs> and you're dealing with people who, who actually shared a lot more in common than they disagreed on, frankly, um, then I think, I think in a day and age in which practically no agreement on, on any major issue whatsoever can be found, uh, the idea of, of reforming the system, I th- it, you know, it leads some caution. I'm not saying it doesn't need to happen. I'm, I'm actually in complete agreement with Dr. Greg on this, but, but I just, uh, I guess maybe the, the anti-federalist in me is like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, you know, you know, it, it, it can be worse. <laughs> <laughs> That's- that's a fair point. And I, I love the, the tone with which you use the word innovation, which matches completely uh, what the writing at the time meant by that, right? This was uh, not a positive, wonderful, warm, fuzzy word for them. This was a dangerous word. Yeah, fundamentally you know? not. You have something to be, to be completely uh, uh, a da- a complete danger to everything. Well, let me submit an answer to my own question. Uh, what could be done? your own efforts <laughs> with this book, actually. Um, it strikes me that some of the things that the McConnell Center is doing, some of the things that you can be see working uh, with the greater and greater adoption of books like this is the very thing that the title uh, captures from Federalist Number 1, which is that you're inviting uh, our fellow citizens, people taking part in everyday uh, life uh, in the United States to this opportunity once again, a renewed opportunity for reflection and choice that without the kind of context as our historians would uh, have us appreciate and without um, the reflection on the principles of not only the American founding, but politics in general, it's difficult to be the uh, chooser of your own political destiny, that it actually takes a certain kind and a certain degree of education. um, And that it's something that at least for the reader here, uh, 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 I get out of this volume. 
I couldn't, uh, I couldn't put a, a better, uh, a better ad together, uh, Justin, <laughs> um, or be more flattered. Thank you for, uh, thank you for saying that it, it is the work we, we are attempting to do here. If we all work in this together. Uh, maybe we can encourage some reflection, uh, before, before we make some choices and, uh, th- let's remember Nathan's final beautiful words. It could all be worse, right? <laughs> <laughs> Which certainly is right. Absolutely. Well, thank you all for joining us on the podcast today. We've been speaking with Aaron Coleman of the University of the Cumberlands and Gary Gregg of the University of Louisville about their new book, Reflection and Choice, The Federalists, the Anti-Federalists, and the Debate that Defined America, which is available now from Butler Books. We've also been joined by Justin Litke of the Politics Department at the Catholic University of America. This has been an episode of Encounters, a podcast of the Center for the Study of Statesmanship at the Catholic University of America, available through Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and on our website at css.cua.edu. Until next time, 